Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. My name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity and professor of psychology and epidemiology and public health at Yale University. I'm delighted uh, to welcome Marian Nessel, the Goddard Professor of Nutrition and Food Sciences at New York University, esteemed author and major figure in the field. Uh, welcome her to the Rudd Center. And um, we're happy to have her here for our podcast. So welcome, Marian. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. So you're, you're a person who um, I think has had an enormous impact on the field because you really were one of the first people out of the gate looking at the nutrition politics and looking at what's going on in big systems that affect the world's diets. And you've identified a number of problems. One thing you identified early on, and I'm curious about how you feel about this now, is that the food industry produces more food than people need, and it, it confronts them with a fundamental problem. Do you still feel that that's the case? Oh, I think it drives everything. It's the, um, you know, it's the elephant in the room. And if you talk to food company executives, as I do very often, they know it. Uh, they know they have an enormous problem, and the way I call it the 3,900-calorie-a-day problem, um, because the food industry in the United States produces, um, and this figure includes what's produced here, less exports plus imports, 3,900 calories a day for every single person in the country, no, how, no matter how old and sedentary they are. And that's roughly twice the population's need. And even if a lot of it is wasted, which the Department of Agriculture says it is, it's still far more food than anybody could possibly eat. There's only a certain amount that people can eat. So it puts the food industry in the position of having to sell food in an enormously competitive environment in which their companies not only have to make profits, but they have to grow their profits every quarter. Um, and it, it, underlines, it underlies every single thing they're doing so that every new product is designed to generate more sales. Their job is to get people to eat more, not less. That's their job. And yes, they could, I suppose, make foods that were far more expensive and didn't have any calories in them, but that's not what they're doing. They're doing mass production of food. It's very cheap, and they're trying to sell as much of it as they possibly can. And the number of calories in the food supply has gone from 3,200 in the early 1980s to its present 3,900. So just at the time when um, everybody was starting to gain weight, the food industry, that was exactly the time when the food industry had to produce higher sales. So given the overproduction and the basic business model that drives short-term earnings as the, the most important factor, it's inevitable, I guess, for industry to use every strategy it possibly can to get people to eat as much food as they possibly can, especially the high profit margin foods. Absolutely. And if you, I talk to a lot of nutrition people and health professionals who are interested in alliances with food companies. And I think this is um, not always an easy thing to work out because the goals of food companies and of public health are almost never the same. The goals of food companies necessarily must be to sell more food as much as possible, grow profits every quarter. Um, the goals of public health are often not the same. And you could say, well, carrots would be great if everybody ate more carrots, but that's not where the profits are. The profits are in the processed foods. What do you see as some of the industry's main strategies to push up sales? 
Well, there are, there are several. Some of them is product development. So there are new products these days because health sells, and so many people are health conscious. They're putting health claims on every single product they can, petitioning the FDA to allow health claims on the most ridiculous foods. Um, so that you go into a supermarket, and every single food has some sort of health endorsement on it of one kind or another. Um, they're marketing foods to um, healthy communities. They're, they're directing food marketing towards overseas communities, minority communities, segmented communities, children, every place where they can sell food, they're trying to sell food. At the same time, they're working behind the scenes to make sure that Congress does not pass legislation that would be unfavorable to products. They certainly don't want any restrictions on marketing to any of those groups. Um, they are attacking their critics, as you and I both have been by our favorite organization. Um, they do quite a lot of that. Um, I get stalked. I don't know about you, yes. but uh, there was probably somebody in the audience today. Um, they attack their critics in, pr in public and in press. Um, and they guard, they do you know, all kinds of their own advertising campaigns. They lobby. You know, the health claims are an interesting mm. example. And if we just take one as an exemplar of how this goes on, General Mills uh, made the announcement some time ago that all their cereals were going to be whole grain cereals. Mm -hmm. What sort of... Um, whole grain Cocoa Puffs. Right. So what sort of legislation makes that possible in the first place? And do you th what do you think about that kind of a claim in general? Well, there was no whole... The FDA had not bothered to do a whole grain claim. So that put the FDA in the position of having to do catch-up on that one. And... The FDA has now issued guidance about what constitutes whole grain, but it's not legally binding. Much of what the FDA does is not legally binding. That's a Congress problem. Congress has steadily, since the early 1990s, weakened the FDA's ability to regulate the food supply. And I think it's one of the great ironies of current politics that food companies are begging for regulation. So the leafy green industry, for example, is just begging for FDA regulation so that they can restore trust in their products. And the grocery manufacturers, I could hardly believe it. They're now begging for regulation. Uh, presumably so that they can have some influence on what the le legislation says because they're terrified that Congress is going to regulate their ability to market to kids or other kinds of things. Well, it seems the time for um, the industry to call for self-regulation is now given the current environment in Washington, which could change with the next election. Mm -hmm. So you can see them for the very reasons you said, asking for these national standards. Right. Let's get be, it now before there's an election and they bring somebody in who maybe isn't as favorable to business. That's right. And, and mm -hmm. the government at the time, at this time, if they were going to do something, it could be very permissive and favorable mm -hmm. to industry. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that the political climate at the moment is so influential here. And, and <clears throat> favoring regulation. Yes, it's very ironic. What do you think about marketing of food to children? Well, I think this is the food industry's big point of vulnerability. It's so wrong on every single level. I mean, they just should not be doing it at all in any way whatsoever. And they got away with it for a very long time. And I think it happened without anybody realizing it. And all of a sudden, when people started looking at the way foods were being marketed to children and the kinds of foods that were being marketed, 
people sat up and said, how did this happen? And we've got to do something about it, particularly in schools where it's so obvious what's going on. Um, and the food industry knows that they've been called on it. And it's not just advocates like you and me who are saying this, but all these investment analyst companies in 2002, three, and four started coming out with these big reports saying, you know, if you guys don't stop doing this, you're going to be subject to regulation, you're going to be subject to lawsuits, um, and you're going to lose your customers because your customers aren't going to stand for it anymore. And I see that happening, not to the extent that I wish it were happening, but it's happening. It's interesting because the, with the FTC having its powers to regulate this sort of thing stripped several decades ago and the First Amendment protecting the ability of companies to speak commercially, um, it's not an easy nut to crack through either uh, regulation or legislation. Well, so that, well, it makes the public opinion all that more important, doesn't it's it? It's very important. But it's interesting that you mentioned the First Amendment because that's used as the excuse for all kinds of dreadful things. And, you know, I think about the First Amendment as, you know, here are the founding fathers sitting around a table um, and thinking we really need freedom of speech in this country. They were talking about politics and religion. They weren't talking about the ability of food companies to market junk foods to kids. So where's the intent here? I mean, this again is uh, something where I think if we had decent leadership in government that somebody would say, we want to protect our children. We're, we need to change our laws so that we have some child protection. Um, and I think that would happen. I don't think, by the way, that fixing the marketing to children problem is going to solve the childhood obesity problem. I think it's gone way beyond that and it's going to take much more. But it would be a lovely first step in kind of getting the noise level down. And, you know, I've got friends who've got, who are the parents of two-year-olds, and they say they don't have a television set in the house and they have never taken their child to McDonald's, and yet their child knows who Ronald McDonald is. That's brilliant marketing. It is brilliant. Um, to what extent do you see these problems being global problems, and do you think global solutions will be necessary? If, if sooner than one would even imagine. You go to, uh, I mean, I do a lot of international traveling, and I always go to supermarkets and go to restaurants and look at what's going on. And, you know, we have a situation in this country where we have 3,900 calories per person per day uh, available. In India, they have 2,500. I'm just back from India. And there, the figure is 2,500. So they're still worried about 800 million people in India who don't have enough to eat and don't have adequate food, while the rising middle class is suffering from obesity and type 2 diabetes. And the healthcare industry there is going nuts trying to figure out how they're going to deal with it when they've still got people starving in the streets. There has to be a global solution. And the World Health Organization tried to work on a global solution a few years ago. And just as we have a global, we have global uh, problems about these sorts of food issues, we also have global lobbying. And even the slightest negative comment or comment about restricting sugars, for example, was just beaten to a pulp by the lobbying efforts over it. So big businesses worldwide, and this again is going to have to be grassroots from the bottom up. And you look at these fights in European countries, you're just amazed. Um, at, they look at us and say, we don't want our country to go in that direction. We want to keep our rates of obesity low as, as low as we can for as long as we can. Um, how are we going to do that? And they don't want to make the 
mistakes that we're making. You know, on one hand, that's very positive news because they do have the opportunity to intervene at an early point in the chain. At an earlier point. At an earlier point. But then also you look at the tobacco experience mm-hmm. where they should have seen the tobacco problems coming too and they've been completely overwhelmed by the marketing of the tobacco industry and now they have very high rates of smoking. So let's hope they can fight off the bad food influence is better than they've been able to do with tobacco. Well, some countries are trying, and, you know, we hope that they'll succeed. Um, But it's very interesting to watch that. So coming back to the United States, nobody has written more brilliantly than you have about the conflicts of interest in government and the way food policy is established. And we can think especially about the USDA that has the Mm -hmm. joint task of establishing nutrition guidelines while its main task is to help the ag industry sell food. What do you think about that and how could that problem be solved? Well, this is part of what the now the Government Accountability Office has been talking about for years that we need an agency that deals with food issues. Um, Health and Human Services has given up its mandate to deal with health information around nutrition, and so it has defaulted to the Department of Agriculture, which is happy to do it. But its job is to promote American agriculture products. Its job is to promote eat more, not eat less. I mean, somewhere in government, there needs to be some independent agency looking at these issues and saying the health of Americans is really important, and it's government's role to protect the health of Americans. Let's do it. Um, You know, I look at the advice about nutrition on government websites and, you know, you either laugh or cry depending on how you feel on a given day. Uh, What you really want is the government saying if you want to do something about overweight, you've got to stop eating junk food. Well, the government can't say that. They can't say it. And as you point out so nicely in your books, they never have. They never have, and they're not going to unless we have a different kind of government. Well, and then looping, looping back to the op-ed that you and I wrote together in the New York Times on the World Health Organization and the sugar thing, when the World Health Organization wrote this very nice report and had pretty simple advice, including three words, eat less sugar, then the American government went crazy. Went berserk. Went berserk went about berserk. that. Put enormous mm-hmm. pressure on the World Health Organization and the constituent mm-hmm. countries and was perceived by many of those countries to be bullying them into a Mm -hmm. position that was completely contrary to what science would suggest. Well, what was so hilarious about that was that the precise advice that the World Health Organization was giving, and I thought it was banal, uh, was exactly what the Department of Agriculture Pyramid said. Um, And even then, um, that's now been fixed because the Department of Agriculture now is out with a new pyramid that got all of those uh, eat less messages out of it. You know, any industry that's feeling the pressure from the public relations changing, which it is in the food case, and which fears regulatory efforts, will be pleading for Mm self-regulation. And they'll be going to to the government officials and to the public and say, we'll police ourselves, we're fully capable of this, we're well-minded people, and please trust us. Mm -hmm. And the food industry has a number of those efforts underway. And one of the examples was the announcement by the beverage industry some time ago that they were going to Mm -hmm. stop marketing some of their products Mm -hmm. in schools. And this was done in conjunction with the Clinton, Mm -hmm. the Bill Clinton Alliance, Um, with a number of the beverage industry players and the American Heart Association. What do you think about this issue of self-regulation in general and perhaps the soft drink 
example is, mm-hmm. is one place where it's happening. Yeah, it's never worked, and it's not going to work this time either because the goals of food companies are to sell more, not less. Um, the beverage association business was especially unfortunate because um, they were facing a consumer movement to get the vending machines out of schools, which is what I think should happen. Get the vending machines out of schools. There didn't used to be vending machines in schools. Um, And Clinton brokered a deal that was extremely favorable to the beverage industry. They'll do anything to keep those vending machines in schools because they know that what's going to happen is that the school systems will set up standards for which which products are allowable, and they will make products that meet, meet those standards. Um, so that if you reduce the sugar by a gram, you can meet the standard. It's still junk food. You want to get those things out of the school and start serving real food in schools again. One thing that the industry has fought hard to retain um, selling in schools, well, two things, diet drinks and sports mm-hmm. drinks. Mm-hmm. What is your opinion on those? Well, sports drinks are just soft drinks with a little bit less sugar. There's, I mean, it's, again, the because they have the sports. That's brilliant marketing. They have the sports aura. Or Snapple in the New York City school system. The, the New York City people got the sodas out of vending machines in the New York City schools. And then Snapple came in and made a deal with the mayor's office to put Snapple in. And the people who made that deal are absolutely convinced that those products are juices. They're not. They're juiced with a D and an exclamation point at the back. They may have been juice at one point, but they're nowhere near juice now. Um, So the purpose is to keep the vending machines in schools. And if you see that as the beverage industry's purpose, then you understand what it is they're doing. They don't care if kids buy water. And that gets me on another high horse. I don't think kids should have to buy water in school. I think they should be given it. It would be nice if some campaigns were available to get kids to go back to the drinking fountains. There you have to clean the the drinking fountains, and that's a whole story in itself. I attempted to find out whether anybody was testing the water in New York City drinking fountains, and they're not, really. Mm. They they're, they're not. It's a big issue. Uh, but yes, and there are schools that have solved that problem by bringing in containers of water and letting the kids fill their own bottles from it. Um, but that requires a very enlightened staff. You know, if you're, if you're the sort of person, as we are, who are hoping that public policy will change uh, to improve the nation's nutrition, one very important strategic question is whether the change should come from the top down, that is from the federal government, or whether it should come from the grassroots and then percolate up. And there's some very interesting parallels with public health, with tobacco being one of them. Almost all the progress in tobacco happened at local and state levels, and the federal government still does almost nothing to curtail smoking in the population. And that was a great public health victory of the last century. What do you think is the the situation shaping up to look like with food, and do you think this will be action from the top down or from the grassroots up? Well, we're already in the middle of what I see as an enormous social movement around food issues, just enormous. Uh, There's so much going on, you can hardly keep up with it. There's so many books coming out, you can hardly keep up with them. Um, And so many people doing so many things, and this is slow food, organic food, local food, what's going on in schools, stop marketing to kids, I mean, um, sustainable agriculture, I mean, all of these things, animal rights, all of these things are part of what I see as an enormous movement uh, towards a food system that is better for people in the environment. 
just as simple as that. It's approached in lots of different ways. It's not very well organized. Um, but the people who are involved in it see it as a movement. They refer to it in movement terms. Mm. They know exactly what their goals are. And they're going after it. And I think legislators have to listen. There's no question the food industry is listening. They hear it loud and clear. And already you can go into food stores and see things in food stores that you couldn't get 10 years ago. You know, readily available, raspberries readily available at all times. Whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, we can argue about. But there they are, and that's part of it. And then the enormous growth of farmers' markets. Um, you know, doubled, tripled in the last 10 years, uh, community-supported agriculture. I mean, all of these things are part of a movement of people who really think they deserve better food. Those are very positive movements, to be sure, and one can only hope they'll grow and that these the grassroots movements will have such an effect on national policy, ultimately, that will get the federal government acting in a positive way that defends public health. Well, I always think start small. How about local and how about state? And then we'll worry about the fe- then we'll worry about the federal. Um, you know, I just think there's not much that can be expected from the federal at this point, but there's plenty that could be expected locally and from states. You know, there we so we've talked about grassroots action. We talked about legislation that could happen at either at the federal level or the state level. Litigation is an interesting mm-hmm. player in this potentially. And, of course, the lawsuits, especially filed by the attorneys general against the tobacco companies, had a, quite a large impact on the whole anti-smoking movement. And we have to wonder what's going on in the U.S. with litigation related to food. I had a friend of mine from England um, who once told me that the problem with you Americans is that you have to sue because the federal government is so um, ill-prepared to protect the public's health in respect to these things where there's an industry making a lot of money like the tobacco industry or the food industry that it will cave into the pressure time and again and so you really have to count on on lawsuits to be an effective public health tool and it's true of toy safety let's say um, car safety gun control a lot of these areas where the litigation has made a difference. Do you think that's a player at all here? I think it is a player, and I know groups of lawyers all over the country who are laying in wait uh, for uh, the right case and the right thing to happen and are looking at the precedents and doing all their homework and doing what lawyers do. They're waiting for the right case. The right case obviously hasn't come yet, but I think it will. And certainly the point of vulnerability is marketing to children. And the uh, you know, one of the issues about trans fats is that once it went on a food label, uh, everybody knew that the companies would be removing the trans fats because it's a demonstrably harmful substance. And if they left it on, they could be sued. Um, and even if they win the suits, even if the suits get thrown out of call, co- out of court, it's very, very bad publicity, and it's not good for business. So the companies want to avoid lawsuits if they can. Um, And I think the legal strategies are just waiting. You know, we just have to wait and see what happens with them. It's interesting that you mentioned the public relations as an important factor here. We saw that in Connecticut, and I think other states have as well, where um, a powerful legislator in Connecticut introduced what has finally become the most aggressive child school nutrition legislation in the country, and it ultimately prevailed, which was nice for the people who believed in this. But what happened is the when, when it first got introduced, the industry sent in some very high-priced lobbyists. The press 
revealed all this and made the industry look very bad as a consequence. And so the industry then had to back down from some of these lobbying practices, which weakened their effectiveness, but also gave the legislators who were pushing this sort of legislation ammunition to mm-hmm. point out that the industry was really preying on children and it was you know, using the big lobbying firms to do that and things. It was very interesting. And I think you're, you're, you've noted in a number of places, including our discussion today, how the public relations tide is turning against the food industry. And that could take us some very interesting places that make possible some things that never were before. So do you agree with that assessment, that the public opinion is turning against the industry? Oh, I don't think there's any question about it. And it's not just the food industry. There are lots of other industries that the public is very concerned about. And that's why these corporations are begging for regulation, because they want to turn some of the responsibility for credibility back to the government. Um, and I think it's just fine that they're under this kind of scrutiny. The uh, They've gotten away with, they had a free ride for a very, very long time. And they were able to do things without being scrutinized. And it's made them, the scrutiny has made them extremely uncomfortable. Um, and they're scrambling to figure out what to do about it. I think they're in a, a, an enormous dilemma. And I talk to food industry executives all the time, and they always throw up their hands and they say, well, what do you want us to do? And I always come in with an agenda. You know, make smaller portions, give people a a price break for smaller portions. All kids' meals should be healthy meals. Get the vending machines out of schools, that sort of thing. But those are all, from the, the standpoint of industry, those are all negatives. They're all things the industry has to stop doing. And what I don't have for them is a positive agenda for moving forward. If they're in the business of making junk food, it's still going to be junk food. And I think people should be eating less of it. Okay. I have one final question. Two of the most important words in this discussion are personal responsibility. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and, of course, the, the whole idea about personal responsibility and taking control of your life plays well in American culture in general. Um, and this is something that uh, the food industry has seized upon and, and its allies in government to say that this really is a matter of personal responsibility, which by, by uh, inference makes it not a matter of social responsibility or corporate responsibility or government responsibility. Where do you come down on that issue? Well, of course it's a matter of personal responsibility. Ultimately, you vote with your fork. Um, but we live in an environment in which the default is to eat very badly. It's to eat too much too often in too large portions of not very good food. Uh, we need to change the default. It's very difficult to exercise personal, informed and healthy personal responsibility in an environment in which it's, you don't have the access or the options uh, in order to eat healthily, and that has to change. And if you look at the ways in which our society is set up, it's set up to make the default unhealthy eating. That has to change. You know, Marion, thank you so much for your tireless work to improve the public's health. My pleasure. I mean, you've obvi- obviously been one of the great pioneers in this, and um, I, and I know it's taken some risks to do that. So uh, we and others thank you, and we're delighted to have you join us at the Rudd Center, and we hope we can invite you back at a different time. Oh, it would be my pleasure. And uh, for those of you listening, uh, again, this was 
taking part as um, part of the, the efforts of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our website is www.yalerudcenter.org, and we have an email newsletter that you're welcome to subscribe to at no cost, a blog, and lots of information on food, nutrition, and food policy-related issues. Thank you, and we look forward to the next podcast.